0: Welcome to the the beyondthebaselines.com podcast, coming to you from Vero Beach, Florida and Marion, Massachusetts. Hosted by Ed Shanafee, this is the podcast that researches and investigates the club management and facilities side of our business. Beyond the Baselines.com podcast, I'm Ed Shanafee, and this week, I'm not your host, as our associate Jennifer Gelhaus takes the mic for us. Jennifer is director of tennis at East Chop Tennis Club up there in Oak Bluffs on Martha's Vineyard, but she has a yearning that goes far beyond the club and tennis industries. Jennifer is working toward an industry more well-rounded and instilling a better business and wellness sense than at present, and today, her podcast does just that. So Jennifer, please take it away. Hello
1: and welcome to the Beyond the Baselines podcast. My name is Jennifer Gelhouse, and I will be your host today. I was actually a guest here a few weeks ago and I absolutely love this platform. I'm very thankful to Ed Shanafi for sharing the mic with me today and I'm super excited to collaborate with Beyond the Baselines. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing a dear friend of mine, Dr. Barbara Nalani Butler, She's a sports management professor at Kennesaw State University, which is so cool because if I could go back in time to my time in college and do it all over again, I would definitely choose to study sports management. Now, unfortunately, I have never seen her hold a tennis racket, but because of this, she brings an outside-of-the-box perspective to our listeners. She co-authored the fourth edition of Social Issues in Sports, which is a textbook and it talks about current trends in sports and the connections between sport and politics, economics, religion, race, gender, youth, etc. She is involved with the International Olympic Academy's International Session for Educators, where she works with scholars around the world to educate on how sports can be a vehicle for peace and understanding.
2: Welcome, Dr. Butler. We are so excited for you to join us today. Thank you so much for having me, and it's so great to catch up with you and just to talk about these issues that we, you know, talk about sometimes just because we're friends and we're both passionate about sports. So uh, again, thank you so much for welcoming me to be on the Baselines. Of course, and I apologize in advance if I call you Nalani because,
1: you know, I'll try to keep it professional and call you Dr. Butler, but I might (laughs) might call you Nalani every now and then. No worries,
2: no worries. (laughs) This is not the classroom. So it's completely fine. Okay, good, good, good. Um, Okay, so tell us a little bit about
1: your background and what you do. How exactly did you get into this world of sports management? And was this something that you always wanted to do? Also,
2: if you can tell us a little bit about your future plans. Well, similar to you, I played sports my entire life. I played soccer since the age of six. Not only that, but I also did gymnastics, figure skating. I was into all these different types of sports. Um, When it really came down to it, I had to choose a sport when I was about 11 years old, right? Because you couldn't go to a gymnastics meet or go go to a figure skating competition and go to a soccer game because they were all on the same weekend. Um, So I decided to choose soccer because it was a team sport. And at the time, I just really... Loved my teammates and um, I was playing outside back and I just, you know, started there in that position. And it was just really exciting for me. So I played soccer my entire life. And then I got a scholarship to Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, at Xavier, I had about five different majors. So I majored in English at one point, communications, business, And I don't even know what the other one was, but then I finally actually ended up deciding on sport management um, because I took a class or an elective and I just fell in love with it. And then I realized it was a major. It's very interdisciplinary. And um, I love the students in my class. The professors were great and everything involved experiential learning. We worked with the Rudy Johnson Foundation at one time and we created an event for them and at that point i realized this is exactly what i want to be doing Um, and then through the curriculum they actually embed an internship in the curriculum so i ended up working for us bank arena when i was up there and they hosted some sporting events and also some concerts so i learned about the sport and entertainment business and then from there i actually ended up working with the cincinnati reds with marketing and promotions and then moved to Lake Placid after college and worked for Bobsled and Skeleton. And during my, during my interview, they said, what do you know about Bobsled and Skeleton? And I said, I really enjoyed the movie Cool Runnings. It was a great film. Oh my gosh, I love that movie. (laughs) Such a good movie, but I did not know anything about it. But I was super honest in the interview as far as, hey, I've had experience working marketing promotions, some community relations, you know, rattling some stuff that I had done. But I said, look, I don't know anything about Bob's Sun Skeleton, just cool runnings. And it was a great film. And they Mm -hmm. said, well, you know what? Come on up here. We'll teach you everything that you need to know. So packed my car and I drove about 17 hours up to Lake Placid. And then um, from there, wow, okay. So I'm just reflecting on everything from there. I moved down to Atlanta, went to Georgia State, got my master's degree in sport administration. Um, When I was at Georgia State, I was a graduate assistant. I worked with player foundations, who else did I work with? I worked in a lot. I was always working, um, and I worked in experiential marketing, and I and I loved that. And I always say, hey, if I wasn't a professor, I would do experiential marketing. Um, I traveled around the country just doing activations for different events um, related to sports and also concerts. So that was really cool. And then I got an opportunity to go to the University of Tennessee, um, and I got my PhD in sports studies, where I focused on sociocultural studies in sport, and then. I was also a graduate teaching associate there, so I taught classes, and I've been teaching for going on my tenth year next year. So it's been a it's been a wild ride. It's been exciting. Being a professor allows me to um, interact and work in the industry because through my students, um, and then also just to share my experiences working in the sports realm um, as well with my students, and so it's it's been really great and. Um, I think I answered most of it, but um, I think you also asked me if this was something I always wanted to do. Yeah. Was that something you
1: always wanted to do? I mean, I guess not because you kind of found out about it uh, uh, with your the class that you took at uh, Xavier, right?
2: Correct. Correct. But it's actually really funny because when I was a freshman in high school, our English teacher had us write a letter to ourselves. And then she mailed it to us on our last day of high school as a graduation present. And when I opened up the letter, apparently I wrote to myself and said, I want to be a sports psychologist. So I always wanted to work in sports. And I guess that was, you know, unconsciously I wanted to do that. And so technically I'm a sports sociologist. So I deviated a little bit from the psychology aspect, but still definitely it's, I guess it's always been my passion and always embedded in me. That's so cool. And
1: I had no idea that you did anything with bobsled. So <laughs> I'm still recovering from that. <laughs> so anyway, um, also what um, you're teaching at Canisaw right now. Correct. Um, but I know you do some different things in the summers. And um, obviously, we're going to talk about your book in a little bit. But what other plans do you have um, coming up? What other things do you have coming up?
2: Coming down the pipeline. So I have a lot of different goals, and I'll just share one with you. Um, so right now, because of everything that happened in 2020 with Black Lives Matter, and even before that, um, you know, I come from a very diverse family, and I've had so many different experiences in sport. And everybody's um, lived experiences they vary, you know, depending on who they are and where they came from. And so I realized that very early on, and I've always been very passionate about cultural competency and diversity and inclusion in sports. So one of my plans is to do some more consulting work in the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and just working with different sport organizations and also just different companies in general, and really helping them to understand the power of diversity and the power of inclusion and, uh, yeah, and just, um, and just making a more inclusive. Of welcoming environment. And, uh, that's really where I'm going with this. So, um, cultural competency training, diversity and inclusion consultants. So be on the lookout for me. Um, if you need somebody to come in and, um, talk to your organization about diversity, equity, inclusion, or, you know, just understanding different things related to ability, race, ethnicity, gender, um, international, anything having to do with sports and beyond. So that's what I, I, I'm, you know, yeah. currently putting together.
1: <laughs> um, now, how did you, um, how did this collaboration with Dr. Woods come about uh, for the book in social issues in sports? And what was the process of writing a book for you? What was that
2: like? So this whole entire thing was very, very exciting for me. And first off, I would just like to thank Dr. Woods for giving me this opportunity to even be a part of this book. Um, basically, what happened was when I got to the University of Tennessee, um, there are two different textbooks that you would most likely use in your sport management class to talk about social issues in sport or sport sociology, however you, you know, want to call it. So when I was there, we actually switched from using a book um, by an author Jay Coakley, and he writes an amazing book on um, sports sociology and different social issues. But it's more it's it's more catered to the graduate level courses, and we decided to adopt a different book that. Would be a little bit easier for undergraduate students to understand. And what I mean by easier is that a lot of undergraduate students that take a, a sports sociology class, this is really their first time talking about anything related to race or gender, um, you know, ethnicity, ability, any of those things. And so we wanted to adopt a book that was just, you know, easy for them to understand. And that was actually Dr. Ron Wood's book. So I started using this book the second year I was at the University of Tennessee. And I was like, wow, this book is amazing. You could really tell the difference in the students as far as them really grasping the concepts and working with it. And I was like, this is just such a great book for these students. And so when I got to the University of Tennessee, I realized that Dr. Ron Woods worked there. And so I was just a oh. huge fan of him. And I had been through the years because I had just read his book, every single edition. I used it. I integrated it. I you know created workshops with it, everything. And so I just wrote him an email and I said, hey, I'm a huge fan of yours. Can I buy you a cup of coffee or tea and just get to know you? Because I think we have a lot of similar interests. Um, That's so cool. Yeah. So he wrote me back. He's like, oh, this would be great. So we ended up just meeting every month and just going to the Starbucks on campus and talking over a cup of tea. Cause I don't really drink coffee. I know you're a big coffee drinker, but yes. I, I don't drink it. But, um, and we would just sit there and we just talk about these different issues that were going on in the world and just about sports. And he's just pretty amazing. His wife works for, um, USTA in Orlando and, he actually... No way. Yeah. yeah. She's she works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't, I don't, I would have to ask him her first name because I haven't seen him in years. It's not which, Kathy Woods, right? I think it's Kathy Woods.
1: Yeah, that's his oh, wife. Oh, yeah. She was the director. I don't know if she's long, uh, if she's there now. I think she actually left, um, but she was there uh, when they started the national campus, I do believe. Look at our worlds
2: uh, colliding, right? I know. That's so yeah. funny. Yeah. Um, so and he's a tennis guy too, right? He plays he's a huge tennis. tennis guy. Yeah. He plays every day, I think like, or a lot. And he, um, and he's very involved with USTA and really helping with the development of, uh, of the players from both a sociological and a psychological perspective.
1: And, oh. uh, very cool.
2: Mm-hmm. really honing in on that youth sport component. Cause he's seen it um, firsthand as far as, you know, the challenges and the issues that these kids face. And um, he's taught me a lot as far as coaching and leadership has gone. And he's just so passionate about these issues. And so it's just, it was just great having him as a mentor, um, him bringing me on as a co author, and now just having him as a friend.
0: I'd like to welcome our first sponsor here at BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast, and that's play by court, playbycourt.com. Choosing the right technology partner is not an easy task. However, staying with the same outdated provider can be a costly decision. And with today's fast-changing environment, well, you need a partner that will help you adapt to the ever-growing needs of your members. At Play by Court, well, they provide the best technology solution customized for your club. With their app, your members can easily manage their profile. They they can book courts, programs, lessons. They can pay. I asked Andre, show me the payment solutions. It's fantastic. And your members can communicate directly with members and you, the staff. So please go have a look at playbycourt.com and see what really matters most to your members. Your club, your rules, your software. Playbycourt.com.
1: Let's get into it. You know, I have to start by asking you about women and coaching, of course. Um, You know, Ed Shanafi, who's our usual host of this show, this is his show, Um, He has asked this to a few of his guests. And of course, you know, we have to hear from you. Now, because Title IX has made such a big impact in women participating in sports throughout the years. um, But, you know, women in coaching, is still way behind. You know, we're definitely a minority. So I want to hear in your opinion or in your expertise, what do you think are the biggest barriers right now for women in the coaching world?
2: So great, great question. And this is actually a question I asked my students. So it's, uh, it's a little different with me having to be on the response side of things, because I'm usually asking these questions to my students. But I think there are, are just a lot of barriers and a lot of challenges, which are just embedded within our culture. Um, you know, one of, the, one, of, one of the challenges is opportunities and just getting the opportunity to actually even coach as a woman, right? Um, you see men coaching both men's sports and women's co- sports. However, you don't see that um, as far as women coaching both women's sports and men's sports, right? Yeah. Um, So that's, that's a big issue in itself. And you know, why is that? Um, And there have been studies done, there have been articles that have been written. And you know, some have to do some say it's because of the lack of respect women get, um, having to constantly prove their knowledge of the game. And then just a lot of the images and ideologies we see that are embedded in us about coaching, usually when we watch movies, or we go out on the field, we see the dad coaching, right? We see men coaching. So young kids growing up thinking that a coach is a male figure, which is not true at all. Right. We all come in, um, different shapes, sizes, colors, genders, all of that. Um, so there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and you know, you were, we were talking about title nine earlier, right. Mm -hmm. And so title nine, um, what a lot of my students don't realize is that Title IX is a federal law here in the United States and nowhere else in the world do they have Title IX. So it's just pretty amazing that we have that here in the US and that's just created an opportunity for so many girls and women to get involved in sports, including both me and you, right? We basically were like the second wave of Title IX. Yeah. Um, And I, I tell my students that all the time. Like when I was coming up I couldn't even buy women's size, uh, you know, cleats. I'd have to buy them in, in men's sizes because they didn't have women's sizes. Oh, and, um, wow. soccer, yeah. And even our uniforms. I, I remember having these Velcro um, straps that I had to strap up my sleeve with, sleeves with because the uniforms were so big that we'd have to roll our shorts and roll our our tops so that they would they would fit. Um so, and you, you could see that when you see Mia Hamm and everybody playing, they their uniforms are really baggy. And that's, yeah. I don't think that was a style. It was just, that's what we had back then. And um, what people don't realize either is that, you know, it was a federal law that was enacted in 1972, but it really didn't actually start to be implemented until the 1980s. So even though it was a law, it was like, okay, cool, it's a law, but we're not really gonna do anything about it. And then in the 1980s, we saw, you know, Pat Summit, who was a trailblazer, um, and she did so much for women's sports. And we saw, you know, people like that really coming to the forefront. Um, And they were able to do that because of Title IX, um, which was which was awesome. And so Title IX um, really helped women as far as access, but not really in coaching because at that time we had the AIAW, which is the association for intercollegiate athletics for women. And that's where a lot of the women's coaches were. Um, that's actually the same as the NCAA. So that's the AIAW was like the NCAA just, but specifically for women back in the day. Okay. Yeah. It was founded in 1971. And so women athletes, female athletes and women's coaches were all in the AIAW. And then in the 1980s, the NCAA started to say, Hey, guess what? Like, there's actually some money in women's sports. So, uh, we should start hosting some women's championships. And they started doing that. And then it became a competition between these two governing bodies for intercollegiate athletics and the NCAA ended up winning, right. And then absorbing a lot of these, um, female athletes and female sports into the fabric of the NCAA institution. But also too, when they started to absorb that men realized, oh, wow, there's, money in women's sports. And so that's when you really start to started to see the transition with a lot of men coaching female athletes and then women being pushed out.
1: Yeah. And then you also hear nowadays how, you know, when, when we talk about like viewership, you know, that there's, there's always a debate of, you know, the women just don't attract as much viewership as men. And I, I, I think that's, just totally wrong you know and we've had that conversation so many years ago and that's why men got into coaching women's teams you know it 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 doesn't make any sense
2: (laughs) no and and there's just like no data to support that right um I mean also too it's you know how many times are you actually going to see women on tv playing a sport like we don't even see it so you can't even say hey yeah There's a lack of viewership and support. If you don't actually even have the opportunity to see it, then you can't say that, right? If you played women's sports on TV, just as much as you played men's sports on TV, maybe you would see a really big difference, but we haven't even gotten the opportunity to really see that in the media. Now,
1: what can organizations and our associations, like say the USDA for our world of tennis, um, but any other association really What can they do to lead the way in equality and increase the retention rate of female coaches? Because what happens a lot of times is that, you know, women get initially attracted to the coaching world, but then they don't stick to it for many reasons, you know, family, you know, whatever personal reason or professional reason. Um, But what can our associations and organizations do to to help with this?
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I think the, the crux of it is really education. And I, and I don't necessarily mean like formal education, but education of children to understand that both men and women can coach sports and that they have the ability to do it. Right. So really just changing that, that understanding at a young age of what a coach looks like, because usually dad is coaching, right? So it would be great if we could bring mom in there to coach with dad or, you know, mom to coach just in general. Um, You know, that's just great for for kids to see. Um, I actually started doing a study a couple years ago, and I still need to finish it. But I actually um, was surveying um, men and uh, football players specifically, who were current and former football players to ask them, you know, what, you know, are the barriers they see as far as seeing female coaches versus male coaches. And, you know, what were some of their fears or some of the things that they thought and a lot of them actually said, you know what, whoever's best suited for the job, um, I think would, you know, I think that they should should be in that position. However, they did say some of their fears were um, just as far as not having respect for that person in the position um, because they, you know, they they don't necessarily play football, um, and then also too, just they've never really been a lot of round of women in football, so they they were actually afraid of offending women in that position. So I really think it has to do with education as far as understanding, Hey, women are in these roles. And also too, um, the reason that they're not in these roles are because of the lack of opportunity, um, as well. Um, and, but they are fully able to coach, um, at any level. I mean, and you've seen men that have not had experience playing in the NFL or the NBA, but they're coaching these teams, you know? (laughs) So that's not a justification for a reason like, Oh, you don't have the experience at this level. Well, there are men that are succeeding like the Miami head coach, right? He Mm -hmm. never played at the NBA level. He played at the college level. Um, So you can't use that as an excuse. He was brought on as a videographer and, uh, you know, in 2020, he almost won the NCAA, I mean, not NCAA, but the NBA championship in the bubble during a pandemic. So, um, yeah, I think education just creating more opportunities and uh, having more structures in place to support women pursuing coaching opportunities, but also too, when they get there, also having mentors and people in their corner that can advocate for them, right? You can't do it all on your own.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think women need a different type of mentorship too, because obviously we face different issues um, than, than just, just coaching, you know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think that's a huge thing. I think that that's very important to have a good. Absolutely.
2: No, absolutely, I agree with you. And you know, down in Tampa Bay, it's pretty amazing, like what they're doing. Right, they're really doing a great job of integrating women into the fabric of their coaching staff. And um, before I left Tampa and all the great warm weather, I took a I took a group of students on a tour of uh, one Buck Place, uh, where the you know Buccaneers play. Uh, and they were actually renovating their locker room. And the reason they were renovating their locker room was because they, uh, recruited women to be on their coaching staff and they needed to create a space where women could feel safe and where women could shower and change and be a part of that locker room culture. Yeah. Right. And so that's a part of it too, is, is really creating that space and that support and that infrastructure. Wow.
1: That tells you a lot, you know, because they're, they weren't even equipped to have women. Tennis in particular, um, and I'm sure other sports did too, but tennis saw a huge increase in participation during COVID. And it could be due to the nature of the sport. You know, it's an individual sport. You allow social distancing and all that. Um, It's just grew a ton with COVID. And I'm wondering if there are other sports or activities that also so increase. And what can these industries do to retain participation in the
2: sport? Yeah, yeah. So COVID was such an interesting time as... You know, we actually had this discussion the other day, right? Because you were saying, oh, yeah, I saw a huge increase with tennis and, you know, just your your personal lived experiences. Um, Golf is thriving, too. Right. Um, People are picking up golf equipment. um, They're out. They're playing. So that's huge. And just outdoor sports activities in general, like hiking, um, that's increased, too. And we're able to really see that data because of the equipment people are buying to go do these things right? Or their Google searches and what they're looking at. And then also with different technologies like geographic information systems, we could actually see people and the trails that they're hitting and how um, more and more people were starting to, to do that. Um, bike sales increased. I know here in Atlanta, it was hard to find a bike. Yeah. Um, and I actually, during the pandemic, I actually joined a bike group um, which was which was great. and I went camping with them last weekend. So um, you know just meeting new friends that like to do healthy activities that are outside that are safely socially distanced that I've kept up with. Um, that I know disc golf has become really popular. So all these activities that you could really do by yourself have yeah. really increased. And then also too, I know that this is a little controversial topic, but gaming. Right, a lot of people were in their houses playing video games, which is now embedded as a sport, and we see esports as as being really big now um, in the sports world. So, um, right there, you have you know all these different sports or activities that people started to get into during the pandemic that you know are sticking around.
1: Yeah, um, it's funny because I was just uh, listening to. Uh, like a conference it was about esports and virtual reality actually and that is that's going to be the next thing basically I think um, because they're going to start using virtual reality for not just gaming but also for training for athletes because you know at this point they make it so that the ball basically travels as fast as it would in real life and it's just really it's just fascinating uh how this can be even used as a training tool um but yeah i mean to me the whole esports thing is kind of funny because is it really a sport like what do you think about that
2: yeah and i think that i mean it's definitely a sport right if you could have hot dog eating contests on on 4th of july weekend and call that a sport esports is definitely <laughs> A sport, right? And um, it really depends on how you define a sport. So um, different scholars define it differently, right? Um, however, what it really involves is some sort of skill, some sort of competition and some sort of training, which esports has all of that. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw esports in the next, you know, eight to twelve years if, if it was in the next Olympics. And it could either be in the winter or summer Olympics, right? Because you could you play it inside. So oh my God. Um, yeah. I would not I would not be surprised. Oh wow.
1: Um, now what can, for example, tennis? You know, we're a tennis crew here, but what can, for example, tennis do to retain all these new players that we have. I mean, obviously we have to provide an amazing service and, but I just want to see if you had any thoughts, you know, coming from outside of the box outside of tennis on how we can keep people engaged and how we can keep people in tennis.
2: I feel like tennis and golf are just really timeless sports. Um, personally, I mean, I, you know, I know you said, I've never seen you pick up a tennis racket, which is a hundred percent true. So next time <laughs> I see you, I'm going to pick one up, but, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's one of those sports that you can play when you're six or when you're 60, right? So, I mean, and you know, it's marketed like that. However, I think that, um, you know, when you see tennis and when you see, um, when you see golf, you're, you're starting to see an increase in terms of the diversity in the players. Um, you know, with like Serena Williams really having an impact on the sport or like Tiger Woods and things like that. So I think just opening it up just as far as um, the recruitment and the accessibility, I, I, you know, I definitely see a shift. Um, so I don't, I don't know where you guys, as far as retaining players and talent and all of that goes, But, you know, from my perspective and outside perspective, I would say that it's definitely become a more diverse sport, but also, too, with youth sports in general and just sports, um, you have to always consider how much is too much, right, with burnout and injuries and playing and this and that. And they started calling them lawnmower parents because they're no longer helicopter parents because they don't just revolve around the kid anymore. They actually mow down the obstacles that they have to go through. So, oh, wow. you know, these, these kids that their parents are maybe paying a lot of money for them to do this training and that training, you know, what's comes with the burnout or, you know, do they even like the sport or the injuries that they endure? And by the time that they become an adult, maybe they just don't want to play anymore because it just wasn't fun anymore for them. You know? So I think these are really the challenges. I think it's really in, in youth sport at this, at this, op, at this juncture we're in.
1: Yeah. Yeah hundred
2: percent. Um,
1: now I briefly mentioned, you know, virtual reality and esports, but I was wondering, um, do you see, or do you foresee any major changes happening in the sports industry, like in the near future? So I feel that, you know, COVID changed everything. Um, and I just wanted to see if, you know, you have more of a, you know, worldview and to sports. And if you could tell us your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, definitely. The world's always changing, right? And so uh, change is constant. It's something we'll always have to adapt to. Um, and you brought up a great point with VR and technology um, that is being used. I remember, I think I, uh, Jameis Winston, I feel like I saw a video of him using it. Actually, yeah, when and when I was in Tampa at the Bucks. So it was like, you know, 2016, he was using the technology uh, as far as from a quarterback's perspective. And you'll see a lot of QBs using it. Um, Um, Oh, the exact reason you were saying that. And um, I'm sure tennis, you'll see that as well, right? Um, Yes. We're always way behind. So
1: (laughs) it doesn't surprise me that, you know, football had it in 2016. And it's just now starting to make its way into tennis. Uh, I just find it fascinating.
2: Yeah, it's super fascinating. Um, I just took a tour of a sportsplex facility here in the Atlanta area. It's called Lake Point, and they're doing some amazing things with virtual technology, with virtual technology, with a uh, VR, and just with technology in general. Um, they have, um, they have, they actually do a lot with data analytics and tracking baseball talent. So they can tell you everything from a young age to an old older age as far as how fast that you're pitching the ball, how many catches you have, where you're standing on the field. Um, it's pretty amazing what they're doing. And they do these scouting reports. Um, it's called Prep Baseball Report. So all the stuff they're doing with data analytics and the fact that um, these scouts can come and uh, just get a printout of these kids and see you know, how, how they're doing over the years and um, if they have the potential to you know, be recruited for intercollegiate athletics or for professional sport. Um, we see in basketball with technology and the fact that you can get data analytics with, you know, all these different players um, as far as their positions on the court or how fast they're running or, you know, their heart rate and, you know, different things like that. So technology is, you know, helping with the recruitment of athletes to really push themselves. And you could see if an athlete is really pushing themselves and all of that, but you know, there's always good things and bad things. So, you know, how much is too much technology? So I think that's a question we'll start asking ourselves. Um, You know, we're asking ourselves that now, but um, we'll be asking ourselves that more in the future as we start to um, bring it into uh, more of the fabric of sports.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And analytics is touching every part of sports from training to the business side, marketing, everything. Um, Even in tennis, I always talk about it because I find it fascinating. And I think tennis is way behind again um, because I think analytics is so important for the business side of club management. And, you know, I could go on and on and on about that, but I think (laughs) that's another thing that just needs to or not need to, it will happen and uh, to make us better. Last question for you. I just wanted um, to learn a little bit more about what you do with the Olympic Committee because we kind of just briefly went over that so what exactly is it that you do?
2: Okay so I was actually it's actually the International Olympic Academy so oh well okay so it's a couple of things so when I worked for Bobsled and Skeleton um, Bobsled and Skeleton here it's a national governing body of the it's called an NOC but it's the National Olympic Committee so they're like so if you go to any if you go to any country, right, like Venezuela or Germany, or the United States, the United States, we have the USOPC, which is the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Most recently, the Paralympics and the Olympics combined their names in the organization. Prior yeah. to, they were the USOC. Um, so every single country has a, um, a national uh, an, an organizing committee. Um, so I worked with an NGB, which is a governing body. And then that is a branch of the United States Olympic and Paralympic committee. So I'm still very much connected with them. I get emails about internships and opportunities all the time, which I pass on to my students because, you know, I'm, I'm not looking for a job right now. Um, mm-hmm. so I pass that on to them. So I definitely have those connections because of the network, the built-in network that, um, the, you know, US OPC has created here um, for, you know, anybody involved with any of the NGBs um, or just the, you know, Olympic Committee in general. Um, So because of my involvement there, I was actually invited to go to Greece, I want to say in 2019, um, for the International Olympic Academy, their session on educators. So it was just a session where Um, a bunch of professors like myself who teach physical education or sports management, we got together and we talked about the different Olympic ideals, um, like legacies and um, the Olympic truce and how that played a role in terms of uh, really developing the education for young athletes and for Olympic athletes and all of that. So more from an education standpoint um, versus an international Olympic committee standpoint, but some people in from the academy do work very closely with the athletes in their country um, and with the Olympic organizations. However, at this point in my career, I am not, but that is definitely something that I'm looking forward to doing in the future. Okay, gotcha. Well, awesome. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> welcome. You're welcome.
1: And thank you so much for joining us today. I always love our conversations and really appreciate them. So thank you for joining us today
2: at Beyond the Baselines, Nalani, And best of luck with everything. Thank you so much and you know for the invitation. And I've learned a lot from you just about the sport of tennis um and just everything as far as from coaching. Um, I've never been a coach. I've done workshops and things like that, but always hearing your stories and just understanding all the different aspects of coaching and program management and being a director. It's just, it's always, it's always great just to, just to hear about those lived experiences. So thank you so much, Jennifer. I really appreciate you taking the time to reach out to me and, you know, for us to have this conversation and to share it with other
0: people. Thank you so much for listening this week. We really appreciate it. I just want to let everyone know that our introductory music is by Ed Shanafee Sr. and his amazing trio. And all the chapter breaks is original music by my daughter, Olivia Shanafee. We hope to hear more from them as we continue this podcast through 2021. And we hope to see more of you as well. Thanks for listening. to beyondthebaselines.com podcast. It's a pleasure bringing you each week's news and views and great guests from our tennis, fitness, and country club industries. You can always reach the team here at baselines at gmail.com or on the phone at 508-538-1288. Please do visit our website at www.beyondthebaselines.com, which is updated regularly with even more information for you, your club, or your facility. See you again soon.